Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Okay. Hey folks, welcome to an episode of 1% Better, and we're doing it live uh, on video, live on audio, uh, live on probably every medium I could possibly think of at this stage. Uh, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest for this one. It's Neil Seligman. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Delighted to, to have you along. I know uh, we've been in touch for a while and uh, took a while for me to get around to getting a Tuesday night live show up and running. But thanks for your patience. Um, yeah. OK, so let's um, get into it. Give a, give yourself an introduction. Neil. I want to hear a little bit about you and then we can take it from there. So um, I suppose I am um, probably best known as the founder of The Conscious Professional, um, which is a consultancy which provides mindful education. Um, this company I formed uh, in 2012 uh, with the idea of bringing some of the, the gifts and principles of, of mindfulness to the corporate world. Um, and I'd had a, a career previously as a, as a barrister um, in the UK. Um, and yeah, before that, my passions kind of had already um, come to the fore around meditation and um, human potential, really. Um, and so that was kind of me as a as a lawyer trying to figure out how to bring some of those things to my world. Um, and then eventually my legal career let that go. Um, and then the new work came along. So it's kind of been a, a transition between the two. Mm. interested to hear in, in a bit how you try to bring some of the meditation mindfulness into the the world as a barrister uh <clears throat> probably challenging but when i was reading your bio uh well, well i suppose first thing first i uh actually was listening to your uh meditations on insight timer it's it's an app i don't know if you it's an, you know what's up on insight yeah. timer it's it's a great meditation app it's free yeah, for it most of it and uh I was checking those out recently, so very good. And you have a book out as well, just to call that out, 100 Mindfulness Meditations. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I published that in 2016. It's kind of a recipe book of meditations, so you can use it to teach yourself meditation or quite a lot of teachers use it to kind of inspire their classes and things like that. Very good. Good to get those called out. So your journey kind of started with another book, another meditation book, I think. Uh, when you were young and teenager, you found one teach yourself meditation. Not yeah. something I would have thought of reading when I was 16 or 17. I didn't know probably what meditation was or might have heard of it, but never really had a good understanding. What was the initial draw to that? Um, I, I'm not sure if I can even put my finger on it. Um. I used to really enjoy conversations with um, my friends at school around, you know, how the world and the universe works. And um, I was fascinated by UFOs and mysteries and crop circles and all of those types of things. And with that sort of bit of the bookshop, uh, which has those types of books, it also had some stuff around meditation and, and also yoga. So another one I, um, I, I bought quite early on. Um, so I just kind of, in my mind, sort of lumped that all together um, as part of kind of what's possible, human potential, you know, all the excitement that goes along with a sort of teenage mind and what's really going on and trying to, you know, figure it all out. Um, so, yeah, it was just part of that, really. And was it something you at that time, you know, you were talking to your friends about how to get them into meditation? Was it something you kind of kept to yourself or was it, you know, something that uh, you were trying to influence others on? Yeah, no, I, um, I've i always been quite vocal about what, what I'm doing in that sort of world of exploration, just because I find it so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um so not from a perspective of sort of enlisting or trying to get other people to do it, but just kind of sharing my passion for it, I suppose, and some of the discoveries, I suppose, that I made along the way. Um, you know, when you, when you find something that's kind of exciting and blows your mind, the most natural thing is to say, come and have a look at this. It's amazing. Um, so it's all that kind of energy, I think. Okay. And did you find once you started reading it and getting into it, did, I suppose beforehand did you think you had a very busy mind was it overactive was there initial hooks to say 
I can start seeing my thoughts a bit clearer now? That's, that's a really tricky thing for me to even recollect because that wasn't my, you know, it wasn't really the vibe of what meditation was about back then. You know, we were really familiar with this idea now of we've all got these busy monkey minds and mindfulness is like the gym that you can go to to kind of mm-hmm. work that through and train and that's great. Mm-hmm. But back then it was it was not that, that wasn't the impulse for it. It was more like, you know, sort of... Um, star wars the sort of yoda type of okay. image of you know there's some something cool and weird about this guy and what's all this kind of force stuff it was you know it's quite an adolescent right, right, right. <laughs> really rather than oh i'm so frantically busy i can't possibly sit still i wasn't that kid okay so you just wanted some sort of jedi mind control ability to kind of lift ships in, in the air and things like that that would have been fantastic. And that's also why when I met this Reiki master in um, America, when I was working out in a kid's camp, right. um, that you know, it sounded to me like he was a Jedi master. So I was obviously very interested in that. <laughs> well, the master word is probably a common theme there. So so when you yeah. met him, his name is Paul Rebet or Rebet, is it? Or? Rebet, yeah. Rebet, I got the French pronunciation right there. So Reiki, talk to me about what was the... The fascination with that and you know in, again what pulled you in what did you learn so much about that yeah so again it was kind of like there's this guy uh from australia um who's talking about energy and um uh using this kind of modality for healing and relaxation and he was um he was kind of had this aspect of kind of clairvoyance to him as well he seemed to like no stuff and yeah so he was kind of like i'd never met anyone like that before um and he was kind of maybe my age maybe a year or two older but you know he's kind of a peer Mm. um who was already you know quite conversant with all this stuff so i was very much attracted to that as something that i wanted to learn more about figure out the whole thing for me was um you know, I was reading all this stuff about spirituality and the esoteric and mysteries, but I'd already kind of made the, um, or come to the conclusion, I guess, that um, I wanted to learn through my own experiences of stuff mm. rather than sort of taking on board a, a theory or a story or someone else's experience. I wanted to do it myself and, and allow that to be kind of primary. Mm. Um, so Reiki was really experiential for me. So he gave me a first Reiki session. Um, I had all these kind of visions and stuff, and it felt like my body was levitating. It wasn't. And, you know, I was seeing all these kind of things um, and feeling all this stuff. And I was like, wow, there's something going on here. This is amazing. Wow. I've actually never had a session or, or treatment of Reiki. I, I know uh, somebody mentioned it to me not so long ago that I can do good for people with type 1 diabetes like i mentioned offline that i that i have i've never dabbled with it <clears throat> is dabbling the right word with recce or is it you know is it kind of more i think um, i think any any of those kind of alternative things there is a an element of dabbling isn't there because it's not just about the modality it's about the person that's operating with the modality um so you could find people who are doing reiki and have you know really amazing experiences and you could have someone who's doing Reiki and you didn't get much out of it. So it's like finding that kind of combo of someone who really knows their stuff and is really good at it. Um, and they're kind of harder to find in my experience. Okay. So, so as you started to learn and develop your skills in that way, how quickly was it before you were able to start practicing it with, with others and kind of, uh, becoming, a a teacher yourself? Yeah, so um, I think it was, so I um, did the first degree that first year that I met this Reiki master, and then I went back um, the following year, and, and another guy that had trained with us gave me the master degree, which sort of trained with him. Right. But then he wasn't as good as the original one. Um, so I then went out to... Um, uh, where the original one was now working, which is in Kiribati, which is the, that island nation in the Pacific. Okay. Um, so I went and spent the summer out there and trained with him for a few months to get the master degree again. 
um, and also to train in this other version of Reiki. So it's like Yusui Reiki is the primary one that I trained in, and then Karuna Reiki as well. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, so within a couple of years, I um, maybe three years, I'd got to the master level. Sounds a bit like <laughs> superior. It just means that you you you've got the ability to now teach other people and to do the attunements of Reiki, which is part of the process how how we teach. Um, and then, um, then yeah, I started doing offering healings. Okay. And and consciousness then, how does that tie into what Reiki is all about? Do you start stepping back, looking at your own consciousness, becoming more aware of it as part of the, the process? Um, I don't think I realized at the time, but, but yeah, I think so. Because, um, you know, I, I had kind of thought that the world ran on this sort of energy system um without really knowing any specifics or being able to talk much more about it than that mm. but then with reiki um you get to kind of experience and feel that energy kind of moving through your body um and offering it to others um and with reiki you're kind of connecting in with uh, a universal source energy so in some traditions that's chi or prana um you know different ways of kind of describing the same thing um and yeah so kind of that was teaching me all about navigating this internal world of consciousness which really is um a practice of mindfulness and embodiment with an intention of it you know to be of benefit and of service to the person that you're with mm. um so so yeah so it was very much a um sort of awakening experience to me it's like another dimension of of life mm. um, and yeah it was kind of it was a, a big deal for me because it gave me a lot of tools that have then become quite foundational to everything else that i do so you can imagine when I'm working in a corporate setting, I'm not talking about this stuff, mm -hmm. um, but I'm talking about <clears throat> mindset and thoughts and emotions and self-talk and belief and all of those types of things. Mm. Um, and I'm talking about embodiment these days because we can talk about that now as practice because you know, mindfulness and yoga are embodiment practices. Um, and so it is about kind of this idea of bringing awareness into the full human vehicle bringing all of our resources online and just being able to show up more in our world mm. with, with reiki and I suppose the practices talking about sensing energy in yourself and, and walking into a room and detecting that with others once you've learned that to a high level uh, is it something that you just have always is it is it something you can always kind of connect and tap into or do you kind of have to keep like maintaining that level of awareness or uh, connectivity i don't know what the right term is is it's a good question um i don't know i can only answer that sort of in my experience yeah yeah, yeah. in my experience that has become just a sort of part of the background awareness that's there hmm. um i wouldn't say that i direct a lot of my focus to that in all things that i'm doing but I know that I can kind of turn the flashlight, my awareness into that direction and that kind of information comes into focus. So, mm. so yeah, so it's kind of there, but it's not, it's not there in a sort of intrusive way. Yeah. 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 You always kind of, yeah. Like you notice that this was why I asked it. I, I'm trying to compare it to just practicing daily meditation or mindfulness for me. And even in the days maybe that I don't do it, some days that I don't do it, I would kind of notice that I mightn't have done it during the day. I mightn't be, I might feel myself a little bit more stressed or, or not connected in as much. So it's just kind of trying to parallel to, to that. Um, that was my kind of purpose behind it, trying to understand it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, um, you know, I don't practice Reiki um, very frequently, actually. Mm -hmm. It's very um occasionally that i work with someone in a sort of healing setting like that mm -hmm. sometimes if i'm doing one-to-one -one coaching work with someone um, i'll say oh we're just going to do a bit of table work 
and I'll do a bit of Reiki on them. Um, but even then, the, the Reiki tools are being used. But as a modality, the way in which I do those types of healings has evolved away from that sort of foundation by quite a wide margin. Right. It's the point where I'm really just listening at the deepest level I know, mm. and then um, responding with sound, movement, and and touch sometimes, the hands-on or hands-off. Um, so it's really just kind of being with what's there and, and kind of what needs to, to be done. Yeah, no, it makes sense. intuitive sort of yeah. process. Absolutely. And intuition is something that definitely must take a note. I want to ask you about about that. Um, so as you were building all this world, I suppose, in your own world, this kind of side of you, the other part of you, the day job part or the, the you know, getting on in society was in the world of law. Um, you were becoming a barrister. Maybe. How did you... Yeah. This was kind of a almost opposite ends of the spectrum. One area is very emotional connectivity, and the other is probably very IQ, very, you know, structured, learn, learned, and uh, very different. So, what was was there an interest in that other area? Was it something you just felt you needed to do? Um. So, yeah, I mean, sort of slightly, um, slightly randomly got there, I suppose, like most of us, you know, on the way through our career or life journey or whatever um i i really liked stationery when i was a kid <laughs> <laughs> um, pens and paper and stuff like that pens, yeah. yeah like i collected that stuff um and um binders where you could put a lot of documents into a big folder yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah total bind nerd and yeah right. post-its and all of that stuff love it um so i don't know i sort of associated this good stationery with lawyers um, and and also the other thing that I got into also quite randomly was public speaking when I was in school. Okay. Um, and a mate of mine volunteered me for some debate he was in at the last minute because his friend dropped out, and I did it, and I apparently did quite well. And then I got to go on this international trip wow. to do like competition a couple of weeks later kicking someone else off the team wow. um, so um so yeah so i sort of launched into that and and did quite well with public speaking and then i was thinking stationary public speaking sort of all going in the barrister direction mm -hmm. um and yeah obviously the kind of the challenge of the law is it's quite quite fun like trying to solve people's problems and help them out was kind of part of it as well mm -hmm. um and then i quite like the idea of also you know as a barrister in the uk you're independent so you're working for yourself right so that's quite appealing so you could kind of make your own practice and um you know you're a little bit more in charge of your holidays and time and all mm -hmm. the rest of it than if you were employed as a solicitor let's say which would be the other legal alternative over here okay um, yeah so you were developing that and it was obviously paying the bills but there was a point at which you were kind of juggling both and maybe talk to me when it got to the point where you decided you had to maybe go one way or the other yeah i mean it was it was um about eight years in um and i i tried doing sort of four days as a barrister one day as a healer meditation teacher um and the clerks the kind of you know people that run the chambers you were actually, actually very... the one day you were trying to do was that within the chambers as well or were you doing a completely separate no, I, I would do that from home <laughs> right right but but yeah. with but but your clients would have been just normal random clients not kind of related yeah. okay yeah yeah okay yeah yeah um so so i was trying to do that but it didn't really work like it's difficult to as a barrister like have a case for more than one day or whatever mm. or something urgent comes in so it was, it was tricky um and then there was just one day well you know i sort of i'd always said that being a barrister was my plan b and that plan a would come along right. um and that's not quite what happened <laughs> um i got the insight that plan b so the first one 
um, was over and I didn't know yet what plan A was going to be. So I was having this kind of just saunter through the car park after work one day um, and a mate of mine from bar school saw me from across the car park and just bounded up. It's like, oh, hey, Neil, um, how's it going? Uh, I hear you're one of the rising stars of the civil bar. And um, when he said that to me, I was a little bit like, oh, that's, that's a nice thing to say. But what actually happened in my head was I had this insight that I had to leave. Um, that was the moment. I was like, God, I've got to get out. Um, and the insight was your star is rising in the wrong field. Mm -hmm. It was super clear. Mm. And it just literally landed like, you know, the penny, the proverbial penny dropping. Mm -hmm. You're in the wrong field. And I reorganized my whole life around that moment. Um, to the extent that within five months, I left chambers, wrapped up all of my cases, my practice. I told them I was going on a sabbatical because obviously <laughs> I didn't have anything to go to. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to check that this was going to be a good idea. Um, and then within, within about five months after leaving, um, I wrote my resignation because even though I didn't know what I was going to do, I knew I wasn't meant to go back. Hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so then that was kind of the big shift. But like I said, plan A had come along yet. I didn't know what I was meant to do. But uh, yeah, but was plan A obviously where you are now? You you know what you're you're doing, and what, I would hope that's probably what you're you're meant to be doing. But at the time when you were making that shift, and you had the recce skills, and you know you were you had those tools was it not that that you were kind of going in that direction or was it just a complete was that not obvious do you uh, think so yeah i mean it 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 was never going to be just that mm -hmm. like the reiki stuff was really um you know it, it's part of who i've become it's kind of foundational to what i do um, but it's no longer primary and, and realistically it was never going to commercially, um, be a replacement for my legal job or income, not that it had to be in terms of amount, but even, you know, even taking a big dip, um, it, it's a very different model. And so it was really about, you know, finding well, what is kind of within this, dual dual interest i have you know it took me a while to figure this out and and express it but i had this kind of interest in professional excellence was something that i enjoyed and you know got a lot out of but also in this other side of kind of um human potential um and and when i was looking at the people at the bar i was thinking well there's loads of people here who could do this just as well as me um and loads of people would love to get into that profession and, and do this. Whereas I think there's not that many people who are you know, a barrister and a Reiki master and really interested in all this stuff. And so maybe there's like a, you know, bringing together of those two things that would make more sense for me to do. Like maybe that would be a more valuable, well, one, or enjoyable to, way for me to spend my time mm -hmm. and two, valuable contribution um, generally. So that was kind of the, the journey that I went on. Hmm. So things started to form. When when that happened around that time, the corporate world probably wasn't very uh, open to meditation and mindfulness and people coming in talking about that. It was, I, you know, even just thinking back five or six years, it wasn't in the conversation. How, yeah. how difficult did you find that those, I suppose, early years to try and make inroads, make an impact? So... So this is 2008 when I had the insight and 2009 when I left. Mm -hmm. um, and I also had not formulated anything to do with what I'm doing now yet. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't having those conversations. The first time I started having those conversations was about 2011 when I actually had an idea for a slightly different business, which was going to be kind of personal development videos for professionals for their CPD continuing professional development kind of points. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so I, I had a few contacts within the law and law firms um, and talked to them about it. And, and they all thought I was mad. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, a non-runner at that stage. So, yeah. So that was a, uh, it didn't really put me off. Um, mm. Not quite sure why. Um, but then this sort of second evolution of the idea came along in 2012 in a meditation. Um, got the kind of idea of the conscious professional and it felt like I was um, being really clearly indicated that I was going to be teaching mindfulness, mm. uh, which even in 2012 was not yet a thing. Mm. Put it that way. Um, and um, yeah, so it, that was a bit of a, oh, really? But it, it was also very clear. So it was like, okay, right. let's give it a go. Very clear. Uh, and it's interesting, as you said, it came to you in a meditation session. Uh, I think sometimes the best ideas do uh, come when you're kind of dropping down a little bit. When when it became the right thing to do, how did you plan going forward? What, what you know, now that you're looking back, what did... What were the kind of first steps you took? What were the, was there a key moment where things started to take shape? Uh, so the first thing I tried was a disaster. Um, and that was a drop-in mindfulness class at the Law Society called Mindful Mondays. And I did a series of 10 um, over, I think it was one autumn or something. And the room was hideously expensive, like one of these really old, you know, uh, law society rooms. Um, I was charging about £10 to enter, and I got between about, I think the best day was about 12 people came. And the, well, it was also a valuable session, but on the worst day, none, nobody came. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did it gradually go down in numbers over the course of the 10 weeks or? No, it was quite random. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, so, so yeah, so I was like, hmm, this is, this is maybe not exactly the model <laughs> of mm. what, what I should be doing. But what, what was really valuable about that was that one, I, I was teaching meditation um, and to the type of audience that I would like to reach. Um, so getting some feedback about that and, you know, just getting a sense of teaching kind of formal classes, which I'd really only done in a one-to-one -one setting before and a few other kind of random events. Um, and, yeah, just kind of figuring out the language, really, um, for, for guiding and guiding to that particular sort of mindset. Mm. So, so, yeah, so it was from there that I then decided, okay, this needs to be something that's purchased by a corporate so that i'm not renting buildings and mm. trying to advertise to the public and you know it's a very diff difficult thing to do mm. uh, it's just a different business model i guess and, sure and yeah so i went that way and that's that's kind of that, that's cool though i guess what i'm taking from that one and you know the previous uh effort was that you're you you deal well with <laughs> mistakes or f failure quote-unquote you, you was that you know had you an approach to to that did, did your own meditation your awareness stand you in good stead for that rather than to be reacting and say god this isn't for me i want to go back to the barrister job yeah no i've, I've always been quite I, I think failures you know obviously you feel it a bit when, when you're the one sitting in the room and no one came through the door you're like oh well this is yeah i'm really pushing in the wrong direction here but when i reflect on these things um you know i do have quite a strong sense of the the direction to go in and and when i don't i wait until i do um and i probably should have mentioned that one of the you know really significant things that happened to me um at a fortuitous time so just before i left my job as a barrister was I met my meditation teacher, mm -hmm. who I've now been working with for, um, or studying with really for, for about 11, 12 years or so. And she's been so instrumental um, in just kind of making it safe really for me to go through this process and giving a context to it um, and helping me process all of the kind of um, the creative aspect of bringing on a, a business in this quite 
um, well, different way. You know, it wasn't like a, you know, here's our five-year plan for income. It was very much I'm really just going into my listening and seeing what's what's there, and then feeding feeding that as an idea and nurturing it, and then watching it emerge into the world. Mm. Um, so I had a lot of trust in that process, like just on a felt sense in my body. I've always been very trustful, actually, of my inner guidance. Um, and yeah, so I kind of had a sense that the unfolding was going in its own, you know, own way in the right direction. Mm. Your, your, your meditation coach, I suppose, is the, the right term. You've been 12 years with that person. Um, how, I suppose, how important is it to, to build a relationship with one person or, or do you find other others that you work with to kind of give you other perspectives? Um, so the, the value to me of that one-to-one relationship has been really huge. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I definitely see a huge amount of value in that. Um, and I love to, you know, read about meditation. Um, I like to listen to, um, different teachers, um, through Audible and Insight Timer and things like that. I like to visit in-person trainings and, you know, sit with teachers and, and all of that. So, yeah, it's not, it's not just one and that's it, but it's very useful for me to have a consistent person to bring my questions to um, and to provide that kind of someone that can hold the context of this part of my story is, is great. Hmm. Very cool. So looking at your I suppose experience, your your clients over the last few years, huge corporates, Netflix, Accenture, Warner Brothers, as you go into those and work with do you mainly work with leader leadership teams in there or what's the typical client base you would work with? Um I I don't think there is really a typical. Um so you know sometimes it's a real mix of, of everyone in the room. Mm. Sometimes it's a specific, you know, for some companies I do a trainee program, you know, as their sort of onboarding. Um and for some it is with the leadership or um I quite often get called in to work with legal teams, for example, because lawyers like to be trained by lawyers. So right. that's quite a good way in for me as an ex lawyer. Um so, so yeah, so it can be a real, real mix, really. Hmm. Do you find, do you still get surprised when you go in? And I guess there's the thing I would, when I do coaching, you get so comfortable or familiar with some of the tools that you forget that other people don't know these tools almost, that they, they've never been exposed to some of these things that you think are simple and things you use every day, but just because you've been doing it for years, other people haven't. Um, does that surprise you still when you go in? It does sometimes, yeah, but in a in nice way. Mm. Uh, and that also kind of reawakens my kind of um, interest and, uh, and joy in sharing it as well. Mm. You know, I feel like when you go to an, a city you've been to a load of times with a friend who's never been, it kind of lights up again in a different way. Mm. Do you ever get afraid or deal with dealing with your fears of how things are going to be perceived or received when you go into a a client um into a group that say you're trying new material or new new stuff out how do you deal with that element of the uh, unknown um yeah so i mean i think it's um you know part of my experience that when i'm doing a new kind of bit of training or a new module or, or whatever there's some nerves around it and whether it's going to work and you know it's it's nice in a way to deliver content that you know because there's a just a comfort with it and you kind of know how to flow with it and so it's new for the first time um but um yeah i i think um my eight years in the courts of england and wales (laughs) stand me in quite good stead when it comes to um, you know, being badgered by, um, you know, well, we judges back then, but, you know, hecklers and all that sort of stuff. And mm. um, that was part of my mindfulness training, which, you know, wouldn't really call it that. 
sure. but actually standing up in front of um, some bloke in a wig and a gown or lady in a wig and a gown and being shouted at um, is is a good training in um, you know dealing with your stress reactivity and remaining calm in the face of conflict and adversity. Um, so, so yeah, I think there was a lot of active mindfulness training going on there, mm. even though I didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? How it all comes comes around uh, to to benefit you. I, I often talk about the hidden benefits or unexpected benefits of doing anything when you set out a goal to start a podcast. That I've talked about last year the 10 things that I learned along the way of actually doing it were, were, were more valuable than actually probably doing it in some, some ways. So, um, yeah. it's, it's all about just doing it, I guess, is the key message there. Um, are there simple tools that you share, uh, with, with clients to get them started with meditation or, you know, there's the, the busyness and there's, they want instant gratification or, or things to work rapidly. What do you do to, to kind of help folks that are, you know always urgently wanting more yeah so i mean there's all sorts of little tips and tools that that we offer um but at the end of the day i think the the thing i like to try and impart to to people particularly if they may be new to it is that you kind of already are you you know there are aspects of your life where you're already mindful um and um it, it's really about just kind of putting a bit of a anchor in that and noticing if you can come back to that in different moments of your day. Um, I was I was doing some coaching with a guy um, and I was asking him about this, like, when do you feel most kind of at peace and connected? And, and he said, oh, you know, it was probably when I was a kid when I would lie in the backyard and look up at the stars um, and just that kind of expanse of, of black and the stars in the night sky. Um, and so I said to him, that's kind of what you're looking for in, in your mindfulness practice when you're hanging out there is you're trying to just kind of sit there and be in the presence of that sort of unending night sky within your own consciousness. And, and yeah, that's the sort of slightly more poetic one. But for some people, it's like, you know, I feel really mindful and clear when I'm running um, or when I'm dancing or you know, whatever. And you try and create some sort of anchor um and then and then people start really saying, oh, it's just, oh it's that like it's not this other thing mm. it's that thing that's already part of my experience and so when i'm trying to navigate there that's where i'm headed mm. i think that's quite big for people because you know the the thing with mindfulness and sometimes the way i describe it is kind of gives you the map of your internal world one of the big things I talk about with people is, you know, we're so amazing at navigating our external reality because we get socialized in how to do it. And, you know, you work with your apps on your phone and you get to the meeting, you say the right things and you write your emails. And, you know, now to do this because we get trained from, you know, when we can hold a screen to start doing it. But mm -hmm. we haven't for most of us in you know the generations that I'm talking to had this internal training of <clears throat> how do I navigate my thoughts, my emotions, my mindset, my beliefs, this kind of inner world of sensations that's kind of weird and peculiar and I generally leave alone. Um, and how can I go looking there when everything's so busy? Um, and what am I looking for? And it's really frustrating. Yeah, there's all of that there for people. Mm. So really just you know trying to find one anchor. Um, that's already there in their life can be a, a good way of kind of making it real and accessible mm. yeah no that's it's very it's an interesting perspective of because as you said everybody has that one or two things that they look back on when they were in a good place or, or a happy place and it's probably all around them as well um that they just need to, to connect into it it makes it makes a lot of sense what part of of was the work you're doing at the moment do you get the most enjoyment from that kind of lights you up that excites you the most um i have to say i really enjoy all of the things that i get to do now um it's real delight to to be doing what i'm doing at the moment i'm just finishing my next book and um i'm really loving that experience um i 
didn't realize how much I'd missed writing until I started this book. Hmm. So um, I'm having that feeling now at the end of the book where I'm like starting to be like, oh no, it's going to be gone soon. Like it's like a buddy that you hang out with yeah. and you're always thinking about it and think, oh, what about this? And kind of collecting things to put in it and tending to it. So um, yeah, the writing, teaching, um, my art, artwork is is probably the deepest aspect of my work. And there's something very precious to me about the experience of creating um, a soul experience for someone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the output of the things that I do are quite different. But to me, they all feel like the same thing. Um, so it's really all about being present and mindful and witnessing. And, and then I'm either saying stuff or writing stuff or having a conversation or whatever. Mm. The artwork, just maybe touch on that a little bit. Uh, I, 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 I didn't see much, or I, I saw you are an artist and you've created art. What, what, uh, what? How do you go about that? What's the process you you do for that? And do you have specific themes to focus on? Yeah, so it's um, I create portraits of of people. Um, I call them soul portraits, um, and it's a photographic experience. Um, so generally someone will come to, I usually shoot in a dance studio or just a, a open space basically. Um, and the, the experience starts with kind of, um, would look more like a Reiki session than a ph photographic shoot. Okay. Um, and then I sort of lead, lead the person into just a kind of playful, expressive, uh, state um, and it sounds kind of bonkers but um, I get them to answer questions with colored fabrics um, with their eyes closed and then as they're moving around with the colored fabrics answering these questions I take photographs of them um, and then these little gifts appear in the camera um, so what I'm actually doing as this is occurring so it, it's kind of um, the idea of witnessing sculpting sacred space and creating from source those are the three themes of my work hmm. um and um yeah it's a it's a really fun playful um different way of creating a, a portrait of someone uh, it's almost like the images are vibrational rather than representative and they're still representative but not in a literal way very interesting I think it's very really difficult to just need to be physically there to see it i think yeah but I, there's I'm a video there. on my website um okay. on the soulport street soulportrait studio website it's like five minutes but it shows a, a portrait being done so you get a sense of it okay very cool we've talked a lot about how you help others meditate and become present how do you actually do it what's your kind of practice like and uh how often do you do it what you know what's What's that structure like? Yeah, so my um, my formal practice is a weekday practice. So Monday to Friday, um, my morning practice starts with um, I make a cup of tea uh, and I sit on my meditation cushion and I drink my tea and look out the window. That's stage one. Um, I then do some mindful movement um, and that's kind of on a yoga mat behind. And then I come back to the cushion and then I go into a closed eyes sit. Um, and it will depend if I have a particular focus. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, and um, yeah, I, I don't listen to anything or I, I just kind of just kind of sit and explore what's there. And sometimes it, it remains quite surface level. And sometimes I drop into a slightly deeper straight and follow that through. Sometimes I have to have a timer on if I'm on a schedule that day, and, and sometimes I don't. So I just kind of flow with the day. Mm. Um, and then I have a set of commitments um, and intentions that I kind of just go through these sentences, and they're kind of just starters of the sentence, so then I can complete it. So it's you know, something that I'm tending for the day, something I'm committed to, something I'm grateful for, those kind of things. Just start the day with intention. So there's those kind of layers to my to my practice in the morning okay and you said typically when you're not on a schedule what, how long would that t tend to take half hour 40 minutes more 
the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say at least it's probably half an hour to an hour. Mm. Yeah, depending on the day. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, do you get up mad mad early? Are you one of those really crazy early risers? No. 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 You don't do that. Uh, no. No. I, I, like, yeah, it's interesting. I think if I have to, I will. But but generally, you know. Um, I'm not. I'm not a friend of the early hours okay. so much. You're on the other side. Do you find doing that when when that practice happens for the rest of the day? Are you? Do you know you've done it? Do you? Do you feel that the day goes in a different direction than the days that it mightn't go? The thing that I really notice is if I skip my practice and i got to go and teach that day is that it feels a bit different so you know when you're training and you know your stuff whatever and it kind of feels like you're plugged into something and there's like a flow you just you get up you start going and then it's oh it's kind of happening mm-hmm. but i very occasionally have the experience where i'm like oh this isn't plugged in <laughs> like the flow isn't happening what's going on and talking nonsense and it's usually the days that i haven't practiced right so like it's yeah it is noticeable hmm. interesting yeah I, I i concur i guess even just i would try to do at the moment maybe a 15 minute stretch every morning while i'm kind of listening to a meditation and kind of calling it honoring myself but the days that i i definitely don't do it uh i i notice it and um it feels as soon as i the hardest part of it, of it is is starting like any jog like anything it just the, not the actual doing of it it's the moving into doing it and as soon as i hit the mat and i'm one minute in i know oh god i'm so glad i'm doing this right now as a you know yeah. it's it's just uh it's massive um in that respect you're i like to ask folks about the inner inner voice and the the dialogue and the the monologue or the chatter that goes on how do you deal with that uh how do you manage to keep that on the down low have you approaches or techniques to uh just block it out or be one with it (laughs) yeah um so yeah blocking it out doesn't work so that's resistance right um so so yeah so that that sort of enters into energizing that voice generally um and being one with it is inadvisable as well um if your inner voice is anything like mine comes up with all manner of nonsense yeah so being one with that i think is a yeah, one of them. I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't be here now if I was one with my inner voice. I think uh, it'd yeah. be a long time gone at this stage. So yeah. Yeah, I was in a session with Jack Cornfield in um, in March, and um, just one of the really simple sentences that he said was, um, "I hope you don't think you're your thoughts," but he said it with such like open-hearted compassion. Mm. Um, for for the suffering that goes along with believing that you are your thoughts mm-hmm. um and so mindfulness for me has taught me that you know this internal world of uh chatter and content stream is just you know one of multiple mm-hmm. which all sit within the deeper aspect of awareness mm-hmm. You know, so that space that all of the traditions point really, this sort of limitless, unending, eternal space of awareness, um, is really the space that I go to find me. Do I need to figure out, oh, you know, is this this thought something to act on? Mm-hmm. You, I would check it <laughs> within awareness rather than go along with it. Mm-hmm. So really for me, it's kind of been kind of a, a journey of not taking the thought stream seriously laughing at it occasionally yeah um not worrying when it's judgmental or crazy or bitchy or whatever yeah it's mad what goes on in there yeah it's it's interesting i um i suppose for most of my adult life i i if i had a hangover after a heavy night out or a heavy weekend the the stream of thoughts coming in would have always been negative and 
it would have made me feel worse and the whole cycle of you know the, the thoughts and emotions connecting in and feel, just making you bad but I, I haven't had a, I've been I gave up drink 18 well what is it 15 months ago 16 months ago now and what's cool is that obviously giving it up is great but the thoughts are still the crazy thoughts still kind of come in and before I would have attributed it to withdrawal from booze or whatever but now I just say well actually they're still there uh but I don't act on it or I don't allow them to annoy me it's just that constant stream of information that's going in and around so um it's it's it, it's 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 good that it they're still there and bad if you know what I mean but um it's just yeah. uh, creating the awareness I suppose and then the other aspect of it is you know if there are thoughts which feel um you know repetitive or you know like you're feeling a bit victimized by the internal world which is quite normal um is just to think to yourself like is there another thought which is true or truer you know on the same subject matter is there another thought which is true or truer um and if you can see yourself in in awareness whilst you ask yourself that that question then you can start kind of leveling the playing field between the sort of negative inner critic or, you know, that sort of judgmental voice we've all got. Um, and then the sort of voice of the inner sage, I call it in my book, you know, this kind of wisdom that can arise. But, um, you know, you you get to choose and then every moment which voice you kind of give energy to and certainly which you believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah totally totally agree you mentioned jack cornfield as one of the teachers i suppose is there others that uh outside of folks listening going checking your stuff out but you you get influenced by you like listening to or find deep and insightful i really like um i do like Eckhart tolly's stuff um and my tip for him is to listen to his retreats on audible um, so he's got these recordings from weekend retreats or whatever. Um, and it's pretty much like being on the retreat. So, you know, I'll be listening to it on the tube in London, but getting the experience of kind of being in his presence. And because meditation is traditionally a, an oral tradition, listening to someone's voice, I think particularly you know, the master teachers like Eckhart Tolle um, is, is really good because you're getting that kind of transmission element of the practice as well so i really like that um i like byron katie she's not necessarily a sort of meditation teacher but i like her her vibe and the work that she does i think is very powerful um and alan watts has been quite pivotal for me um over the years he's got lots of little booklets which are very rich in um in learning um and yeah, has kind of really helped me deepen my meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're probably my favourites, I'd say. Cool, v- very good. Um, I'm conscious of time. We'll we'll wrap it up in a, in a few minutes. You mentioned you have another book coming out. Is that a? Is there a title on that one yet? Is it is it due? Yeah, yeah. So that one's called Conscious Leadership. Okay. Um, and it's um it's with White Lion Publishing, and it's a build and become book. So it's within a series of their their books um but it's the idea that um you know for conscious leadership's not just for leaders or corporate people but that leadership is something that we all can embody um and it's really about doing the self work you know leadership development is really the same as human development um in this kind of thesis of the book um so it's kind of a process that we can go through it's quite active and you know lots of kind of little practices to do and um and stuff so yeah it's a fun one to write mm, very interesting is there any one tool or tip out of the book that you could share that somebody could take on board easily from a from listening to a podcast um so what i've been writing about today um i've been writing about creativity um so one of the tips i was talking about today is the idea of creating too much so we tend to, when we create stuff, whether it's, you know, trying to problem solve or whatever, try and, you know, do it and put energy into doing it until we've got a good enough solution. Um, but there's this uh, website called Upworthy that you might have heard of that spreads kind of good news stories. Mm-hmm. And for every story they 
um, put out, they make the writer write 25 different headlines for it. Um, and so it's that idea of you keep going, even if you've got a good enough solution, keep creating. There's a sort of abundance to the energy of creation. You know, an apple tree doesn't produce five apples. It'll produce so many apples until it breaks its own branches. Right. Um, so, yeah, create too much. Hmm. Very good. Uh, it'll give it people, people a bit of a taste. And when is it due out? Uh, it's in October. I can't remember exactly the, the date, but it is actually on Amazon already, which is a bit intimidating for me. Um, so you can pre-order it, but it's not quite finished yet, but it, it should be out there by October. That's, that's one good way of uh, putting you under a deadline when people can actually yeah. buy it beforehand. Um, hopefully, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you, have, you, have, you have plenty of time to, to get there. Um, yeah, it's there. <laughs> very good. And so, so, Neil, it was great chatting to you, and I think we've touched on a lot of, interesting topics for me and hopefully for folks that uh, check it out listen to the podcast or if they're actually listening or watching at the moment how can folks find out more about you uh, go to your website go to some of your maybe upcoming workshops or retreats even yeah thanks so um yeah the main website uh, for the business side of things is the consciousprofessional.com so that's kind of the corporate side um, the sort of public access side for events and retreats and um, Instagram and all those types of things is neilseligman.com. Um, I'm neil.seligman on Instagram and just Neil Seligman on YouTube. Um, and I do a, a new video practice each week. So if you want to come along and, and have a go, um, they're all there on YouTube or you'll find them on IGTV. Um, and then I've got a couple of things coming up. So on May 24th, The Conscious Leader is a one-day event in Sheffield. Uh, which is going to be great. And then I've got a mindfulness retreat from the 28th to the 30th of June at Champneys, um, which you can book through the Champneys website. And uh, the same venue, 4th to the 6th of October, I do a soul ignition retreat, um, which is kind of a deeper dive using mindfulness and life coaching and stuff into um, just kind of kickstarting wherever you are in your life. Wow. Very good. Uh, must be a lot of work goes into putting those together, Neil. Like, what sort of preparation goes into that? Yeah, I mean, the mindfulness one I've been uh, teaching for I think three, three or four years now. So that sort of runs itself now. It's got a good shape to it. Soul ignition I started last year, um, and was amazing. It was a really brilliant event. So um, yeah, that's kind of got a shape to it as well. And I think just over the years, you know, you kind of work out what works and doesn't work and then just package it in a way that you can flow with it through, you know, a reach retreat is great because you've got more time with people. Yeah. A lot kind of informal conversations can happen. And so we can adapt the program really as it goes along based on who's there. So yeah, it's a nice way of doing it. Very cool. Yeah. Sounds, sounds great. I interviewed a couple of comedians a, a few weeks ago and it, they talk about putting bits together it's similar in a way putting a you know a show together as putting anything together there's yeah. a huge amount of effort goes into doing that in the background that you probably nobody maybe realizes i suppose until uh until you go into it and it runs smoothly and even then they don't realize it but um yeah i hear you i i i, I know the effort that's required so brilliant look thanks for your time neil it was great to, to chat I, I enjoyed listening to your story and um I've certainly taken a few bits and pieces out of it uh, and hopefully those that do check it out uh, also have uh, enjoyed it. Brilliant. Thanks, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, likewise, I will leave it there and uh, we'll talk to you hopefully again in the future, Neil. If you're ever over in these parts, let me know. Brilliant. Thanks very much. All right. Good night, man. Night. Good luck. All right. So that's the podcast with Neil now done and i hope it went quite well um i know folks if you're listening to this on the podcast audio only the recording has just about finished i'm just going to give a call out to the upcoming podcast one percent better on friday it is with susan bennett who is better known as the original voice of siri the app on uh, the voice app on your iphone uh, i interviewed susan a few weeks back and we talk about her career as a voiceover actor an actress uh, and a musician but the whole area of siri and how that all came about was fascinating and she talks about her decision to come out as siri after a period of time 
wondering what will happen if she did and the the good things that came after that so so look i'll leave it there this podcast uh, hopefully was worth checking out thanks as always go to the website go to instagram rob of the green um and any of the other socials and it'd be great to have you following and sharing thanks so much good luck